Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Hey folks, today we are going to veer off topic from what you're used to hearing on this show. We're going to talk about alcoholism and addiction. Many of you who know me personally or through social media know that my brother passed away recently. For a few days after his death, I kept noticing that I had so many questions that I couldn't get answered. So with my mom's permission, I wanted to do an episode and tell a little bit about my brother's story. We have a private Facebook group with folks who help with the Bad Roman Project, where we bounce ideas off of each other, and I proposed doing this episode and searching for someone to come on and help answer my questions. And immediately, Nicholas Harrelson, John D'Angelo, and Scott Goldman offered to come on the show, which I'm so grateful for. During this project and on other social media platforms, these guys have become good friends of mine, and it makes this conversation more comfortable for me. So I'm so thankful for them to offer to help me work through this. All three of them have their own experiences with this. So hopefully if anyone listening who is struggling with this or knows someone who is struggling with this can be helped by this episode, I will add that prior to my brother's death, this subject would never have been on my radar to do an episode on, and I will not rule out doing more in the future. When I asked my mom her thoughts on me doing this episode, she didn't even let me finish asking when she said, absolutely, even if it only helps one person, so TJ's death will not be in vain. Guys, I'm so thankful for y'all here. John, why don't you uh, lead us off here and, and tell us a little bit about your, your experience with uh, addiction and alcoholism. Sure. So um, I come from a family of addicts. My uh, father's been addicted to poly substance, uh, alcohol primarily. Um, and I don't have much of a relationship with him now, but, um, you know, I, that had fallen off in my, uh, my late teen years. Um, and I'm now in emergency medicine. I'm a nurse at the moment. I have been for about two years and I worked on an ambulance six years before that. So, uh, I've seen the firsthand sort of, um, removed experience, but, experience nonetheless with addiction and um, the very real sort of tangible outcomes sometimes and, and often the worst outcomes. And so um, I've come to be extremely sensitive to the topic and it's uh, sort of a pet issue of mine at work that um, it's treated as a, as a disease and not as some um, either moralistic issue or one of, um, you know, lack of willpower or um, an inability to control themselves. I, I think it's a really pressing thing for medical personnel to, to treat it as it is. And um, yes. it's something I try to take the opportunity to do whenever I can. Hey, so uh, my name is Nicholas Harrelson. Um, I guess my, my uh, uh, experience with addiction began uh, at the end of my uh, enlistment uh, in the military. I was wounded in 2011 and, uh, and came home and had uh, a few surgeries uh, as well as um, um, I had a couple of friends that committed suicide uh, shortly after we got back. And, and that combination of, um, of um, my own personal physical pain uh, coupled with that uh, mental and emotional pain uh, really uh, set me up for um, substance abuse issues. Um, I actually uh, spent about eight years um, addicted to opiate uh, pain medicine, um, which eventually turned into uh, a two gram a hair, a two gram a, a day heroin habit. Um, and so uh, I have been, I uh, first started seeking recovery um, in 2015. Uh, it wasn't until 2018 that I, I really um, became serious about that. Um, and so, uh, you know, I can say here in the last three years, um, I can I've looked back on my my addiction as being uh, uh, sort of a necessary uh, experience for me to to be where I am now. Um, and so uh, I'll be you know coming at the, the discussion today uh, from my own personal experience as an addict, but also getting to, to work with and. Uh, and through other addicts uh, as well, um, which has just been, you know, it's been a blessing, honestly. So, 
Wow. Um, I don't quite know where to start. I just know drugs have been involved in my life. The first thing, the first time I noticed it was about five years old. Um, my mother, she remarried and the stepdad was a dude who sold pot. And the first time I ever tried pot was five years old because he thought it was funny if he uh, got me and my brother high and laughed at us. Um, that being said, I'm not anti-marijuana whatsoever. I'm actually a, a, a user of it for medical benefits. Um, but when I first started noticing addiction, honestly, it was probably cigarette use. Um, it grew from there from my youth. You know, then we, you know, then we did start smoking marijuana and then I got hooked on meth for about a year, um, and had to move, um, out of the area to get away from it. So it's, it's something that I know that is in, in my life constantly, that it's a, it's a battle that I'll fight my whole life and, a, and something that I have to, um, be constantly aware of. However, I don't think it's a all or nothing, um, from my point of view. Um, the horrible experiences I, I've had was I lost a friend, um, right after moving away. Uh, from my childhood town in uh, Hanford, California, um, died of an overdose. And then I lost a stepbrother and a stepsister from heroin use. Um, so the tr I know the tragedies and I know the struggle. However, I don't really have much clinical experience. I appreciate all of y'all telling that y'all story. Um, I'm going to tell you to the listeners, and I told you guys before we started recording, if I had to stop, clear my throat, because at the time of this recording, this has been this is a little, a little, almost three weeks since my brother was found dead, and so I've had some time to regroup. But if if I have to stop, clear a lump out of my throat, I apologize because it's this is probably going to bring up some emotions for me still because it's still still pretty fresh. But I want to start this conversation with my brother's name was TJ, and he he spent a lot of a lot of his life being knocked down. His father was not in his life. Most of his adult life, he dealt with depression. He was dealing with mental and physical pain. The, the alcohol, I think he is something he used to dull both of those pains. And he, uh, he was not one that would probably, we wouldn't, we, we tried like hell to talk to him about it. And he just, he, I don't know as voluntary as I don't believe that we would be anybody to try and force anybody into treatment. It was going to have to be their own decision. And I don't think forcing anybody into treatment is, is helpful anyway. But that being said, he, he died of alcoholism. It looks uh, from what we can tell, it looks like he just went to sleep and did not wake up. He had been hospitalized four times. I found out four times. I thought it only been two times, but the last time he was in the hospital, it was pretty serious. He was in the in ICU for a week, and I called my mom while she was there with him in the hospital, and she goes, do you want to talk to him? I said, sure, and we didn't really talk. We just cried, and I was like, okay, this is it. He's going to he's gonna straighten up. He's learned his lesson, and he taught he, – he, he treated it like it was a reset button when he'd get out of the hospital. Uh, his best friend showed up, two moms, when we were out there, and he said when he went to check on TJ when he got out of the hospital and he was just steady drinking again. And he was like, are you supposed to be drinking? He said, man, I, I said, I'm good. They, they got me cleaned up. I, I, you know, I'm good to go. And he dealt with depression, like I said. And so I don't one thing I want to I want to uh, make clear or try to get people to understand because something that I used to myself believe is that it's not a disease. It was a people cannot control themselves. And they have some kind of moral issues with this. But watching my brother go down that path and watching how his dad went down that path and he's got a brother on his father's side that's going down the same path, I can no longer look at it as not being a disease. And I don't believe it is a moral issue because my brother was gold. He was he was peaceful. He was he loved everybody. He loved being around people. He was a natural introvert, but he also liked being around people. He was, he always liked, he liked to laugh. He was a, he was a cut up and I don't think it was a moral issue. He was a good person. And so these are, these are questions that I'm struggling with right now because I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding. I don't understand depression and that's my fault. I guess I don't understand addiction. Now I will have some beers, but I could, I don't understand not being able to drink and not be able to function. And I'm going to put this out there as well, and we can all get into this as we go along. These lockdowns 
by the government accelerated my brother's death. He was furloughed from his job. He got offered his job back. He refused because he was scared to death of this virus. He did, would not leave his apartment. He would have his groceries delivered or anything he would just delivered. He would not leave. And the last conversation I had over the phone with him was on his birthday. And we, we argued because I told him, I said, you've got to get out of that apartment and get some kind of normalcy back in your life. This is not healthy to just stay cooped up like that all the time. And this isn't, and it, was, it was a recipe for disaster. My mom shared something on Facebook. Um, and there was one line in this thing that she shared and it said, it was like watching a tragedy unfold like you're watching a movie. None of us were surprised that this happened, but it doesn't make it any easier. Like my other brother said, now I do fully believe that these lockdowns accelerated this. You see, uh, I, I read something the other day that alcohol sales are up 300% since all this started. Suicide rates are spiking. My brother did not c commit suicide from what the coroner said. It looked like he just went to sleep and didn't wake up. So we're, we're pretty sure it was alcohol poisoning. Scott. Yeah, well, I can really relate to the the depression, um, and I agree wholeheartedly um, with you on the COVID laws that they're forcing. It's not good for mental health, and that's something that is not being put out in the media and, and not really talked about. They want to focus so much on just obey these rules, not uh, what these rules are, have, um, how do you say, cause and effect. You know, every time you change something, something else is affected and we're not our society is acting how do you say not intelligently to say it the least and to be honest i'm trying to hold back a lot of cussing um because this is a very very painful thing depression i was diagnosed with first as a 14 year old kid with chronic depression um and institutionalized for about a month and a half to work it out um, and then later in life, I had a complete nervous breakdown at the age of 21 when I was just getting my life started. And of course, I blamed it on everything that I was doing around me and not that I had an illness. Um, and then I was later diagnosed with a bipolar disorder. Um, and I've been wrestling with that ever since I've, I've known it. I've had to learn about it. Um, I decided not to use medication and doctors because I, I did for a couple years and it just didn't, didn't work for me. So I took a more natural approach of just kind of biting your tongue, eating a good diet and exercising like they tell you to, to do for for almost everything. And it was probably the best thing for me to do was to get off medication. The alcoholism that your brother had, I, I see that in one of my best friends. He he wanted to be a rock star from high school <laughs> and he latched onto that dream so drastically and it never came true. And he just kept drinking himself into literally like walking death. I would go and see him in a Rite Aid that he worked at and he smelt like feces and death. I don't know how to describe it. And he got to the point where the doctors even said, you cannot quit cold Turkey. You have to wean yourself off. And he drank himself to being skinny as a rail and cross-eyed and he is clean now but he lives he's my age 45 um and lives with his mom and is still recouping from the years and years of damage that that he did did to himself so i just want to echo what you what you started saying about how this situation uh this covid is is not good it's, it's just not good and it's doing more harm um to those of us that that struggle with mental illness well, anybody that has listened to me talk about this COVID situation knows how angry I've been at the government for how they're handling it. But now this has affected me personally with my brother passing away, and it has made me even more angry and upset with how it's being handled. And I don't, I'm hoping it ends soon because at some point people got to realize that this is not the way. We, we had to be able to get reach out to these people. And, I, and you said something about medication. My my brother refused to take pills. He, he was on medication at one point for depression or anxiety. And he would not smoke marijuana because it made him so anxious. And so he, alcohol was his go-to. Go ahead, Nicholas. Yeah, Craig. So first, I, you know, I just want to make sure you know that, uh, that you've been in my prayers, your family, um, and TJ. Um and, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, 
you know, I think it's important right now that we we state out loud um, that, that God's love, mercy, and grace know no bounds. Um, and that is true just as much for the addict as it is for anyone else. You know, as far as um, the quarantine goes, um, you know, addiction is a disease of isolation. Um, when I was at my worst as an addict was when I was at my most isolated. And that was during a normal time where, where self-imposed isolation was the result of my addiction. Um, I spent many days in, um, in a, a stupor on a bathroom floor locked behind a door for hours. And I thought I was having a good time. Um, you know, it's a, it's a disease that warps our perceptions and our senses. Um, and, 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 you know, it, it starts off in my case as, as a, a, an attempt at self-medicating. Um, you think it's helping and, and indeed in the moment it could be helping, um, especially initially. Um, but eventually the use of various substances, um, becomes the problem itself. Um, you're no longer just masking emotional issues because the drugs themselves have physical consequences as well, especially over time and with, um, with being consumed in large amounts. Um, and so the, the quarantine, you know, I don't think you'll even get people who are pro quarantine who will deny the statistics that are coming out of uh, millennials and, and other generations where I think I heard today uh, a quarter of all millennials have considered suicide during the quarantine um, over the last like four months, um, which is, you know, a truly astounding number. Um especially given how high that that number was previous to this. I mean, it's it's still, you know, I, I, I generally am floored when I hear about the rate of depression and, and consideration for suicide. But but that that is truly an astronomical number, um, one in four. Um, and and, you know, I don't think you're going to get people who are pro quarantine who are going to deny that, um, that that is an issue. Now, as far as the rationalization of how that's okay. Um, I, you know, I can't, I can't necessarily speak to that. Um, but it is a, it is a problem, um, that, that many are experiencing right now. Um, you know, I have, I've had, um, uh, along with addiction, um, issues of anxiety, depression. Um, at one point the VA had me on almost 13 different medications. Um, and it, and it was essentially one medication that treated a problem that I had. And then another medication to treat the symptoms of the, the medication they gave me to treat the problem and so on and so forth until I ended at 13. Um, and eventually I decided, um, that I wasn't going to take any medication anymore. And, uh, you know, I can only say, from my experience, that was one of the better decisions I ever made um, was to accept um, alternative treatments, uh, uh, therapy, uh, talk therapy, speech therapy, group therapy, various types of therapy, um, and try to work through my issues without masking them behind just another substance. Um, but that took years for me to get to that realization. And, uh, it, it took, um, it took a lot of, um, bad experiences and, and unfortunately, and this is the problem with addiction is, you know, we as addicts, we will change when the pain becomes great enough and different addicts have different thresholds for pain, um, and pain tolerance. Um, and, you know, I, I am lucky that I found my, my bottom uh, and lived to find my bottom because it is not through anything I did that helped me survive or anyone else. Um, it is, it is by the grace of God that I survived all my various attempts 
to to essentially kill myself. Uh, it might not have been, you know, an intentional killing of myself in that moment, but I was certainly working my way towards death. And and most addicts are. Um, and that's the unfortunate part of it, uh, I think. Let me ask you something, Nicholas, since you're in recovery yourself. When I was in town uh, after all this happened, I, I got together with a friend of mine I've been friends with since I was, I was, I don't know, 17, 18 years old. But he's uh, he's been sober for 16 years, I believe. And he invited me over for dinner to, with him and his wife. And I was talking to him and I said, I don't know. I don't know if TJ even knew he had a problem because he would lie. He would lie to us about it. We knew he was lying to us about it because when I would go into town for when I go visit, I'd pick him up. And he would say, you know, he would, he was talking about he was not drinking anymore, but I could smell it, man. I could smell it. It was like it was pouring out of his pores. But talking about my friend, he goes, there's not a doubt in his mind that TJ knew he had a problem. But you have to have a moment of clarity. Do you, do you understand what he's talking about there? Because I'm, I'm trying to understand what that means, like a moment of clarity where you realize, okay, I've got to stop doing this. Or are you ever going to have that type of clarity if you're in the bottle or if you're uh, doing drugs. Yeah. So, um, yes, I, I, I understand what, what he's saying because I have experienced it, you know, um, and I think it's difficult to explain to someone who hasn't had to have that experience in life. Um, you know, my, I, I distinctly recall my moment of clarity um, and and it was after several days of um, of not using drugs um, that I, you know, I came to a realization. Um, you know, it's, it started off with me telling everyone my problem and and what what I was essentially doing, um, and and so then my family became involved, and and I was pretty much you know looked out or looked after for you know, 24 seven. Um, I got very angry, very bitter, very upset by the fact that, you know, having told my, my family what was going on, they were now keeping me from continuing to do what I wanted to do. Um, but I had that moment of clarity when I realized that I had spent the last eight months in a, in a, a desperate back and forth in my mind, wanting to stop, praying for any way to stop, because honestly, I, I was using so much that I couldn't afford it. And so I would run out of money and then I would get sick for days. And then I would, you know, find some way to get some more and I'd be good for a day. And then I'd be sick for days. And it just became this endless cycle that I knew I was never going to break free from but I couldn't find a way to do it. And then I realized that I'd given myself that chance and that this was the time that if I was going to find some way to, to feel, all I wanted to do was just feel better at that point. Like all these other dreams, aspirations, goals, you know, a spiritual uh, life, all of these things, I, I, I could have cared less. I just didn't want to feel like I was dying. Um, and so I, I just made a couple of choices um, that day when I had that moment of clarity that have continued to pay dividends since then. Um, you know, my moment of clarity is not exactly the same as others um, necessarily. Um, mine was a was also a spiritual moment of clarity where I I finally, you know, my, my whole life I'd been raised in the church, um, but I had always felt like, you know, I, I knew God was there, but I never saw God in my life. Um, you know, I, I could look around me and understand that, that God was present, but I couldn't see him. Um, and my moment of clarity involved me seeing multiple instances um, that by themselves could have just been coincidences. But I, I suddenly came to the realization that, that this is God's presence in my life. Um, all I have to do is be willing to recognize it. Um, 
And so that that really gave a um, provided an emphasis to my, my moment of clarity, I think. Thanks for sharing that, Nick. Um, yeah, that's, I, my moment of clarity, I guess, for me was um, my grandfather had died. And that was like the one subconscious belief I had in my head at the time was that this man would live forever. Like this is, you know, a lot of times they say your image of God is the, the men that raised you. And I was raised by my grandfather who was very mean and heavy handed for the most part. And my real father was absent. So those were my first views of God. Um, but when my grandfather died, it was devastating to me because I always had this call it Stockholm syndrome or whatever that, um, I always had something to turn to. I always had a strength that I could go to that was outside myself. Um, and the night of his funeral, I got extremely wasted. Um, just drinking tequila and then think of 40 ounce of Mickey's or something. And then did a huge amount of meth that I'd never even tried to do that much. in in my, uh, previous experience, I'm guessing because of the alcohol and, um, the running from the pain. And next thing you know, I was coming to, and my, my brother was dropping me off at my mom's and she called, uh, I come from a Pentecostal family. So they're, they're used to midnight caller and prayer chains and everybody came over to the house and prayed with me, um, prayed for me. And I was belligerent. And within maybe a half hour I came to, and I remember the, how do you say in the light going off of, I need Jesus. I need something outside of myself. And it was, I guess it was something I still saw in my grandfather, even though like he was a heavy, mean person. Um, he had a relentless faith in Christ. And I realized like he didn't even understand Christ in my opinion, <laughs> but he still had, he still clung to it. So that was one moment of hope, but that didn't change my life forever. I went back to using meth, still hanging out with the same friends, living in the same town. And when I did align with one of my mom's old friends, because my mom is clean and had been clean and sober for years, um, it was a wake-up call to me that either I can get out of this environment and become somebody respectable like I see my mother, or I can see these older people that my mom left that crowd years ago, and that's my future. And that was my moment of clarity and my wake-up call. And... The biggest dream I've ever had in my life was to raise kids that didn't have to go through the abuses I did and the struggle. Sorry, I'm going to lose that. And for the most part, I did. Um, my last kid just moved out of the house. Um, but that was my saving grace. In a sense, if I would have stayed in the same scenario, I don't know what came of my life. So I'm thankful for the moment of clarity, to be honest with you. Um, and I'm also thankful that I have like guys like you to talk with that have some kind of experience and uh, some kind of open heart and, and, and love for one another that I can let these things go. So for that, I just want to say thank you. And thanks, thank you for sharing your stories because it, it encourages people like me who kind of keep them bottled up and don't, don't want to deal with them. I'm going to ask you and Nicholas something. I appreciate that, Scott. Um, and then I want to ask John something with him being an, a nurse, but how do you reach somebody that's in that situation? Cause we tried like hell with TJ. It's not like we ignored him or ignored that he had a drinking problem. We tried, but I, I got to the point with him where I just stopped talking to him about it because it was not productive. And I just talked to him about things that he wanted to talk about, you know, things that he was interested in because, because I wanted, because I didn't get to see him a lot after I moved to Memphis. And so I just wanted to have, you know, conversations with him because I didn't get to spend a lot of time with him anymore. And how do you, how do you reach somebody that is not wanting to be reached? Is it possible or do they, do you just have to hope that they come to a moment of clarity before they die? Because I've been racking my brain trying to figure out if there was something I could have said, something I could have done different, you know, and I think all of us beat ourselves up after he died, you know, a little bit or maybe even a little more, but I don't know that there's anything that we could have done different because it was just easier for me to love him who, for who he was. And it was just going to be up to him than it was to fight with him about it because he was not going, he was not going to listen he wasn't, he, was, he wasn't going to listen to it because 
like I said, we knew he was lying to us. And if he was going to lie to us about it, then I didn't see the, I didn't see him wanting to get better. Necklace. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a very tough question. Um, You know, and I think the best way that I can approach it is, is to speak from personal experience, both as an addict and, and in my experience with, with other addicts. Um, I think it's different for every single person. Like I said, you know, that, um, that pain threshold that we all individually hold, um, it is different for each person. Um, ultimately, from my experience, a person has to have a realization that they are harming themselves and through their actions, they are potentially harming people who love them and that they want something different. Um, and that, and that is a, a realization that they have to have continually for the rest of their life. And that is why it is so very difficult. Um, I have to wake up every day and, and understand that I have to make the next right decision and that one wrong decision could put me down a pathway back to active addiction. Um, and that is for, for many people, that is a tough realization to have and something that they choose you know, actively to ignore, um, just because it's, it, it, it is difficult. Um, especially in the beginning, especially in the beginning. Um, because we don't, we don't come to these situations as addicts where we are now having to get clean off drugs in, in a good way. I mean, we, we generally arrive at this, at that moment, um, hopeless with, um, you know, spiritually bankrupt, physically, you know, close to death, many of us, um, with families that have disowned us, um, you know, and so, you know, what can loved ones do? Um, one, I think loved ones have to understand um, that just like they can't cure someone of cancer, they're not going to be able to cure someone from addiction. Um, it is not their responsibility. There is nothing that they did to make someone become an addict. And there is nothing that they can do to make someone not be an addict. What you can do, um, especially, you know, for, for people listening who may be in these situations, always be ready to support someone when they do want to talk about it. Understand what you can offer them in support, which is not a place to live for a year while they continue their habit. Um, it's not, I can give you $200 a month while they continue their habit. It's offering assistance and here's treatment. We will send you to treatment. We will continue to send you to treatment as long as you continue to come to us asking for it. Even if you go back out and you relapse, if you come to us and say you want treatment, we will be there to help you find that. Um, a lot of times addicts honestly get loved to death. Um, and, uh, you know, I think uh, John can probably speak to this a little bit better as a, a medical professional. But, you know, it's a, a codependency um, issue where, you know, um, Parents just, I mean, they do anything for their children. And so they believe, you know, they're, they easily will believe the things that they're being told and will allow their children or loved ones to, um, to, to take advantage of them all in, you know, support of their habit. So it's, it's, it's a difficult thing, man. You know, like you want to be there to help someone and you want to believe um, someone, um, but unfortunately, you know, with, with addicts, you know, like I said, you know, consuming a, a drug doesn't, it is not a new moral act. Um, but with people who have addiction, it can very easily lead us to 
acting immorally in pursuit of our habit. Um, and so there's, there's a fine line, there's a distinction there. Um, but, but I think it's one that, that can be made. I, I think what Nick said really, really explained a lot. And, um, I don't think I can add to it, um, but it maybe just put a little bit of different language to it. But yes, it's the individual has to come to some kind of personal revelation of what's going on in their life. And then the second thing they need to do is to take responsibility for it. And that's the hard part that us on the outside can't do. And the thing that we can do, though, is we can abide in faith, hope, and love. And that requires engagement with the people. Um, and it sounds like you did everything perfect, um, but we're never guaranteed the right outcome um, or the outcome we want. That, unfortunately, it, we have to leave in the hands of God. But one thing I am very, very certain of is that punishment is not the answer. And I know that's how we have dealt with it on a conservative side of um, – our political system is just lock these people up. Um, and I, I, I've seen guys, I have a, a good friend who was locked up for, I think he's in his thirties now, but he's been locked up most of his life from the age of 20. And every time he got out, he was back to using within just a few months. Um, and now he's actually out has a girlfriend and has a kid and has something to live for. So eventually he got this revelation and he's, he's doing good. But at the same time, he's having a hard time um, because people don't want to rent to a convicted felon. And so it's, it's these people are put in a bad situation and not, not given the help. And that's, that's one of the things I would just like to hammer down on is punishment's not the answer for this. So (laughs) TJ was never in trouble with, uh, the law with his alcoholism. He never got in trouble for it. And speaking to his best friend when I was in town and when he'd come out and talk to mom and us, and he, he said, TJ would always say, do not tell my mom that I'm drinking. Do not tell them that I'm drinking. So he knew, in my mind, he knew that he was, he didn't need to be doing it or he didn't, he didn't want it, or maybe he just didn't want us to worry about it. But we, and his best friend told him, he said, TJ, they're not stupid. And we we were we were aware of it, and I I don't know, man. I just I, I I want to believe that he knew he had a problem, but I don't know. I'm afraid that if he knew he had a problem, he did not care that he had a problem. And I think that's what what kind of bothers me the most about it because he was he had gotten to a point in his life, like I said earlier, he'd been knocked down so many times in his life, and he was dealing with depression that I'm afraid that he just with being locked in and, and shut in. And he just got to a point where he was, there was no hope. And this is how he dealt with it. John, go ahead. Um, I really appreciate everybody's uh, honesty and vulnerability. I think it's uh, really healthy for recovery to be able to be so frank about where you're at. Um, and I think it's a result of uh, something that you're kind of coming to realize Craig with uh, TJ that, that clarity doesn't come uh, easily. It comes at the cost of kind of hitting that that bottom, like Nick was talking about. And I think that uh, in the case of of both Nick and Scott, and and maybe with TJ, there's often so much uh, underlying addiction. Like we had talked before, we had gotten on. I had read um, Johan Hari's book, uh, Chasing the Scream, and it really codified, I think, the way that I was already thinking about addiction. Um, because it really does a great job of tracing the drug war as a policy and sort of the history of that starting back in the 1930s. And I'll keep this as apolitical as I can. Um, And then juxtaposing that with various individuals who suffered from addiction throughout the story. And it's, it's incredible. Um, But what he, what he shows by examining the data is that um, most people with addiction Um, are people who are suffering other mental health issues first and foremost. Um, As I had said, you're not going to find Nick at his bottom uh, using heroin, Um, you know, just walking out his front door with the perfect white picket fence and the great family and the screaming kids uh, and the, and the great job, and then just go right to um, abusing drugs. You know, there's, there's usually a a process there and it's usually beginning with uh, some sort of 
trauma or difficulty with mental health issues um, that precedes it. And so I think we kind of conflate the worst manifestations of addiction with our not addicted selves and not being able to understand how someone could get to that point. And um, that's true. I don't think anyone gets to that point um, from being a healthy, uh, well-adjusted individual to someone who's addicted to, to drugs or alcohol. And so, um, you know, he may have been in a point where he hadn't reached his, his uh, moment of clarity or, or, you know, really trying to pivot. Um, and that's obviously a, a tragedy, but um, there isn't necessarily a formula for this. And there's really not a ton of support in place um, for people who are addicted. Uh, often medicine, as Nick can attest, is, um, you know, everything is uh, a nail for medicine as the hammer, right? And so they will prescribe and they'll put you through the uh, treatment programs or whatever, but ultimately there isn't a, a solution medically except that someone has to truly be interested in getting into a rehab program. And so even when they mandate it, as you were talking about, the recidivism rates for mandated rehab is extremely high, as is not being, uh, even when it's voluntary, it's very high. But uh, people have to come to grips with wanting to get better themselves because it is a, a disease and a mental health issue. And it's something that people um, really need to grapple with themselves and, and be ready to take the step towards getting better. Um, and that's not an easy thing for someone who's unwell and depressed to be forward thinking and to be interested in self-betterment. Joe, let me ask you something since you, you work, you're, you're a nurse and you work in a hospital. Do you see... What do you see in, cause like I said, my brother was in the hospital four times for this. Are you seeing similar instances as a nurse where you're seeing folks in there for, uh, overdoses or, or alcoholism or whatever? Are, how are you seeing this and are you, are they, how are they being treated? Are they just being treated to recover and then just sent on their way? Or is there any kind of counseling that goes on with it or? So I can only really speak to my state. Uh, Connecticut has a, a state program called CCAR where uh, uh, coaches are sent out and they're recovery coaches who will coordinate uh, inpatient rehab for uh, the patient uh, it, and can get them outpatient counseling if that's what's appropriate. Um, but ultimately, uh, it's sort of a system doomed to fail for uh, somebody who's addicted because if you go to an emergency room, will treat you medically for whatever's wrong with you medically. And in the case of someone who's addicted to alcohol, if they have some medical problem uh, with that, which is often common, it's one of the more destructive uh, drugs that someone can take uh, physically, we'll admit them medically and then we'll give them medicine to help them with their, uh, their um, detox symptoms because detoxing from alcohol is one of the most dangerous drugs to detox from and can kill you. Uh, so we'll give you medicine to make that uh, process a little bit more safe. And then um, we'll discharge you when you're medically cleared. Uh, and we can set, set you up with resources, but these resources are extremely limited. And um, they're often pretty conventional. So you'll go, you'll do your two weeks or whatever of getting clean. Uh, you'll get some coping mechanisms and some resources for outpatient therapies and, and um, AA or NA or whatever. But uh, the onus is is on the patient 100% of the time. You have to be interested in making this step. And so to answer your question directly, every single day, and I'm not exaggerating, I deal with somebody who's addicted to drugs or alcohol or whose medical problems are directly related to addiction. It's one of the biggest problems in the US uh, from a medical standpoint um, and just community-wide. I mean, every single community has this issue. Um, it's, it's not unique to my area where it's uh, fairly low income. Um, and it's not unique, you know, it's not because I'm in Northeast Connecticut relative to central Connecticut, everywhere has, has this stuff. Um, and unfortunately that there isn't, um, there isn't a cure. I mean, Nick, I, I love what you said about, you wouldn't be able to cure your family of cancer. Uh, unfortunately though, cancer does have some pretty clear, uh, guidelines for treatment. You need chemo and radiation or surgery or whatever. Uh, with addiction, you need to be able to build out um, with the supports that you have 
an infrastructure in your life of people and um, things that can replace this sort of gnawing uh, addiction that you have in your life. And it has to be something that that supersedes your depression and your inability to want to be forward thinking and your uh, inability to want something more than the thing that you're addicted to. And that's not an easy recipe. Um, in the book, Chasing the Scream, they talk a lot about people in recovery who um, have great success with finding uh, a significant other. And people with significant others often have much higher uh, rates of success in rehab. People with children have higher success. People with jobs have higher success rates. But oftentimes it's that isolation, that inability to look forward and see uh, a prosperous future that, that drives people to continue the cyclical nature of addiction. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, as an example from my life, uh, in 2015 uh, was when we, uh, or when I, and, and some other folks in my family first understood that I might have an issue. And I spent $10,000 going to a private rehab facility for 30 days. Um, I went to that rehab facility believing that, you know, there was, they were going to cure me and I'd be fine. Um, I essentially went just to get people off my back because um, they had suddenly found out that, you know, I, I mean, I overdosed. It was actually at a, a service dog training event. Um, um, I was in line to get a, a fully trained PTSD service dog. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's something like a, a $30,000 dog that I was getting for free. Um, and I completely ruined all that by overdosing uh, in the middle of the, the subway uh, during our one of our training events. Um, so, yeah, I went to rehab pretty much to get people off my back. Um, and as soon as I got out, I went right back to using again. Um, and then here over the last three years since I've been in recovery, I made the conscious decision to go to uh, 12-step fellowship groups, which are free to anyone and everyone. And I became a part of that fellowship um, and actually did the things they told me to do that helped them get clean. And surprisingly, um, this free uh, service has been the thing that has um, helped me the most. And it's not because they have some sort of magic formula. It's because I actually like decided like, hey, I want to, I want, like I, I see these people who tell me they used to live like I do now, but I look at them and I see people that are nothing like that. And I want what they have. Um, I want that for myself. And then going back to the, um, the original uh, question uh, about, you know, whether or not he understood he had a problem and that he just didn't care. Um, I can tell you from my personal experience, um, I understood that I had a problem. I understood that I had many problems and I prioritized um, the fact that I thought I needed drugs to help me alleviate the other issues. I thought that I needed them, that, um, that everyone else was crazy and that I needed this. And without it, I would be ill. I would truly, I would truly not be able to function in life. I mean, to a degree, it was true because I was physically addicted. And so, yes, there would be the withdrawals and I'd be incapable of functioning. But, but I thought that, you know, you know, the nightmares that I had, the inability to sleep, the constant anxiety, the depression, I thought these things made it, it made these things better. Um, I mean, there was a period of time where I was in law school and I was doing 180 milligrams of oxycodone a day. Um, and I went to law school and functioned reasonably well, I thought, um, and most other people thought. Um, and, you know, it's it's a it's one of the the the, the biggest issues with addiction is um, the ability to to self-deceive. Um, to rationalize. And so it's not necessarily, I, I, I don't think that, that, you know, your brother, I mean, he probably did understand. In fact, if he, if he knew uh, enough to tell people not to tell his family that he was drinking, he knew that there was a problem of some type. Perhaps the only problem he was aware of was that people would be upset with him. But that, that isn't clear indication of a problem. And I, I think he probably knew that. 
Um, I don't think that that means whatsoever that he didn't care. Um, I think I, you know, I, in my own personal experience, it's, it's not that I didn't care. It's that I thought I had no other option. Um, and that's one of the big things is, you know, we, we never understand um, until we see there are options and truly, like truly see and comprehend that there are other options. Um, that's one of the most hopeless things about addiction is we feel there's no way out. Yeah, I've, and I probably misspoke when I said that he didn't care. I, I don't know that for sure because I honestly believe if he knew how much grief this has caused his family and friends that he may have chosen a different path if he knew ahead of time because he loved his family and he loved his friends and he did not want to hurt us. He did not He did not want us hurt. And he knew there was his friend was telling me that he was always afraid that he was a disappointment to us and we never, ever let on that at all. And so I think I think if he knew for sure that how this would affect us, but I don't think he knew he was killing himself either. So I don't know. It's just it's a, it's a tragedy and it, it ended horribly and it sucks, man. And it's just I'm hoping that anybody listening to this that knows somebody or if, you, if you're struggling with this yourself, please seek some help because this could end very badly and it's going to hurt a lot of people in your lives. Uh John just texted me. He had to go, so he wanted me to tell everybody bye, and I really appreciate him being on the show. And Love you, dude, and I appreciate you so much for coming on and talking to us. Scott, go ahead. Yeah, John really got my mind um, spinning on trauma and addiction and um, the connection between it. And it's something, I have to say, I, I put on the back burner quite a bit because the way I've just lived my life is more of a, a fight. You know, I come, I came from a, a more poverty um, class in life, you know, I had to climb and, um, I'm thankful for, for the fight that's in me, but the traumas, um, I have to admit, like I, I can see the process now that he kind of, kind of brought it up is the things that hurt me as a kid, man. No, we don't want to feel pain and we don't want to feel this discomfort. And so we seek those things out to make us feel better. And then for a while they do, they feel better and you feel accepted and you, you're in a community. And then in a minute, in a bit that, that community starts falling apart because it's in a sense it's focused on the wrong thing. And now you're in a new hell and it's just like a repetitive cycle. And so I know there's just that huge connection between the, the trauma and the addiction. Got to figure out a way to break those cycles and poverty in itself is in a sense, a, a trauma. Um, I can even remember like little emotional things as a kid when like a rich kid picked on me for my, my crappy clothes. <laughs> um, yeah. Fought back, you know, started making fun of him for being adopted, you know, and you just get in these, <laughs> yeah, you know, and just, you get in these things and it's, um, you're personally attacked and it's, um, just part of us as humans that we, we really have to figure out and, and fight through. Um, but man, it's a really, it's such a mystery. And the sad part of it is like, there's no, what I'm seeing, there's no one thing that's going to fix everybody's problem. It's just every individual case. I, I, I do think there is one generic answer I can give, but it's how to apply it. And it's that you love people to the best of your ability and you heal their trauma. But that just leads us to more questions of how, how has this person been hurt? What is their real need? I mean, it, it's complicated. You know, it's funny you said that when you're talking about the, the rich kids, my, my brother was a total snark and he, uh, like I said, he got knocked down quite a bit of his life, and he got picked on by people, you know. TJ, me and him were nothing alike. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. We were – but he was my brother, and we loved each other. We, and when I would introduce him as my brother, people were surprised that we were, that we were even related. But So he got picked on quite a bit, but, man, he would bite back. You know, he didn't – he never hesitated to, to be a snark back to people. and Because, I mean, he, he would stand his ground, and he uh, – and me and him, and we'd ha we would have uh, our disagreements. And I, and I told my mom, I said, you know, I said I, I felt I felt horrible because of my last phone conversation with with him is we argued about him sitting at home all the time. And she goes, you know, TJ would bite back, and then he would go on to something else. He did not hold anything against you, and you know that. And I said, I know, but it's you, you kind of what. One more conversation that, that wasn't the last one like that. And I don't know. It's just something that goes through my head. And 
I just want, you know, one more, one more time to talk to him and, you know, it is what it is. I'm pretty sure I'm going to see him again and maybe we'll, we'll get in, we'll talk about something else, <laughs> but, you know, but I don't know, man, it's, it's, a, it's tough and it's, it's really tough on, on the people that are left behind because we're, we're, we're left with so many questions and so just don't understand. And, and I'm not trying to have a pity party by any means, but it just, it just leaves so many unanswered questions. And I, I honestly believe if just step back and think about what's happening to, it's not just happening to you. If you're involved, it's happening to your family. It's happening to your friends and they are in pain too. And they're in a lot of pain. If you end up losing your life over this, Nick, let's go ahead. Yeah. There was, there was just something, you know, I, I wanted to add um, from what I said a little bit ago. Um, uh, you know, one of the clearest indications that this is a disease is that addiction changes the brain. It truly changes the brain. Um, the, you know, it changes the brain from a, a chemical perspective, and I'm fairly certain it changes it from a physical perspective as well. Um, and and that, you know, that alone is enough to completely change people's behaviors against their will um, in, in most instances. Um, and, and that's why I think it's an important thing to remember, you know, that we are as addicts, we are not, um, we are not morally rep reprehensible for merely being addicts. Um, you know, we have to view this from, from an, from individual actions. If, uh, you know, it is, it is not illegal for someone to go home and drink two beers. However, if somebody drinks two beers and plows their car through someone's living room, well, then, you know, they have committed a crime, um, which, you know, wasn't necessarily a, a, a result of, of drinking alcohol, but, um, but they have committed a crime nonetheless. So, um, you know, I think it's important that we remember that. And then, you know, talking about how how we have moralized this, you know, uh, and, and to the point of, you know, punitive um, repercussions for people who are committing a, essentially a vice, um, which is to, to imbibe substances. You know, if we look at uh, and, and I'm just going to put this out there so people can can, you know, look it up later. I won't go into too much detail, but Portugal is a great example of uh, a nation state that has uh, decriminalized drugs and in decriminalizing drugs, they have taken the funding that would have otherwise been used by police departments to break up drug activity. Um, they have then put that money towards um, safe places for people to who are addicts to use drugs so that they are supervised and won't kill themselves as well as in treatment facilities. And I believe Portugal, which had a, a gigantic and astronomic um, uh, rate of addiction has seen that uh, that addiction drop precipitously since they have done this, um, which is, you know, if you, if you want a clear indication of something being a moral or a medical issue, I think that that would be a pretty good one. Um, you know, there's so many different layers wrapped up in this discussion of addiction. There's the, you know, the individual, personal, the spiritual. And that's, that's one thing that is so often neglected by the medical side of things um, is an understanding of the, the spiritual bankruptcy that comes from uh from using substances as an addict does. Um, you know, one of the greatest things in my recovery has been that I have rediscovered my spirituality. Um, I have relapsed. And, and one of the first things, um, you know, one of the first things I discovered in, in recovery is spirituality. I saw God around me. I saw and I felt the presence of God in my life. Um, I was able to make that connection easily as soon as I put a substance in my body, whether it was me having surgery and having to take pain medicine or me abusing pain medicine a short time later in a relapse. 
both instances, because my body can't tell the difference between what's prescribed to me and what isn't. Both instances, the first thing that went was my connection just to my spirituality. I could not feel God anymore. I could not feel um, his presence in my life. Um, it, it, it was the first thing that went. And, you know, I get that that's not necessarily a medical thing um, and that, that, you know, medicine shouldn't really be concerned with that necessarily. I think there needs to be an acknowledgement of it, though, that it is just as much an important aspect of um, of recovery and of of wholeness for a human being, um, you know, and I think that's I think that's neglected often. I agree, well, guys. We've gone for a little over an hour, and I I love both of y'all, and John, I love you too. I'm, I'm sorry you had to leave, but I am so thankful for y'all coming on and talking to me about this. This has been very helpful, and I'm hope I'm hoping that it it will be helpful to others when they listen, you know, if it could just help one person, you know, was, that, that would be a huge blessing. You know, God can make good out of a tragedy. And that is my hope for this episode. Do you guys have anything else you'd like to add before we end this episode? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind. It just, just kind of bounces off what you said, um, that God uses all things to good. And that's usually the Bible verse we don't want to hear when we're suffering. So if it's offensive, I apologize. Um, but I see it in hindsight. I look at my struggles with addiction. I look at friends and family that I've lost, and it gives me more compassion to help the people that are struggling in the now. Um, it doesn't make the pain go away, but at least it gives me the energy um, and the motivation to love and help the best that we can. Because the reality is, is we, we don't have full control. And I think that's something that you might realize through this, this experience is that you, you weren't able to control it. Um, humanity wants to, uh, sometimes think that we can and bear unnecessary grief and unnecessary guilt. And we have to be free from that too. Um, I think about your last conversation with your brother and you didn't want to leave it that way, but at the same time you were loving your brother. I mean, that's what I could hear. Um, you wanted change, you wanted better for him. And that's something that I hope Craig, you can, you can sit on and be like, I did my best. And you know what? That is good enough. It doesn't, we don't, we don't always have the same, I hate to use the economic terms that, you know, that we fight about in um, our society, but we can't guarantee equal outcome, but we can guarantee that if we work hard and we give our best in all situations, it's good enough. And we cry when we need to cry and we rejoice when we need to rejoice and we thank God for it all. And pray that he can make sense out of it um, and give us wisdom. Nicholas, go ahead. Yeah. You know, first man, uh, love you as well. Thank you for having both of us on her and, and John as well. Um, you know, uh, my experience with addiction, my experience with trauma, with physical trauma, emotional trauma, um, they all eventually led to me um, pursuing uh, the priesthood, you know, something I never would have considered. Uh, before then, um, something just a few short years ago, I never would have thought I was worthy of, um, much less many other things. Um, and, and it's, it, it is true. You know, I, I have a lot of guilt, um, in my life for the things I did. I have a lot of shame, uh, for the things I did to other people in my active addiction. Um, and I have a lot of guilt and shame for the people I lost during my uh, active addiction, um, friends that committed suicide from my my deployment. You know, uh, m much like you've expressed, you know, you always wonder if there was something you missed or something you could have done, something you could have said. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I feel all of those. Um, you know, I think. Uh, um, one of the important things, and if anyone is listening who is in active addiction, um, one of the most gratifying things of my recovery um, is that I can look back on those feelings of shame and of guilt, and I can say that that is who I was, and it is no longer who I am. Um, and it 
it gives me the opportunity to do something with that. Um, and so, you know, first and foremost, if anybody who's listening is in active addiction, um, I, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here by saying that, that Craig would welcome you to contact the podcast and, and we will try to offer you um, direction and assistance um, as we can. Um, you know, there, there are many things that we can direct you towards that are, are free and easily accessible um, that have truly changed my life. And I know many others. Um, so, you know, we are, you know, it's, it's honestly one of the things I live for now um, is, is to be able to, to use the terrible experiences I had and the terrible experiences I caused on other people to try to make some good of it. Um, and so, you know, if you, if you contact me personally, if you contact through the, the podcast, please feel free uh, to reach out to me and I will, I will be more than happy to help. And I'm sure anyone on this, this, uh, this podcast would, would be so. It's actually really cool that you said that because I was actually just thinking that before you said it, because yes, I think all four of us, anybody involved in, I might not be as much help as the other three, but all of us would be willing to speak to anybody, lend an ear and, and help direct you into a place that you could, find help or whatever. Yes. Please reach out to us. You can, you can reach out to us through our website, the bad You can reach out to us through email, the bad woman podcast at gmail.com. Uh, feel free to reach out to us and I can get in touch with Nicholas, John, Scott, any of anybody you want to talk to, and we would be happy to do whatever we can to help you. Well, guys, I love y'all. And I'm so Thankful for y'all coming on to do this. Left, we got our marching right, orders, man. Left, right, left, right. We'd rather left, serve God than right, serve Caesar, you left, know me? Right, I'm just trying to live what he said. I'm just trying to live what he said. I ain't scared. I will take one to the head. Go ahead. So it's safe to say that I'm bad. 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 Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. You can subscribe to the show wherever podcasts are found. And if you like what you hear, be sure to leave us a rating, as it is the best way to help other people find us. 100% of donations to the show are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. If you would like to donate to the show, learn more, or connect with us, you can visit our website, thebadroman.com. Until next time, remember... Sometimes being a good Christian means being a bad Roman. Yeah.